Welcome back, Heming Brainiacs, to the podcast. Day two of my holiday. We went stand-up paddleboarding today. And a nice little inlet, shallow inlet it's called, I think, something like that. Had a swim. Had some sausages on the barbie when we got back. An Australian barbecue, nothing better. Loving being on holiday. Now I'm sitting out on the balcony. Again, I'm wearing a woody because it's a bit of a chilly night. I'm sipping a cup of coffee. Happy as a pig in shit, as they say. Book two, chapter six of Buddenbrook's near. Oh, sorry. Now the boys are turning into wrecks, apparently. Zock says, near the end of chap- the chapter, the console catches Tony reading Cloran's Mimmel. Here is an English translation of the German Wikipedia article. A love story between a German officer and a mountain farmer's daughter. It addressed the conflict between virtue and desire. Mimmel was long on the index for writings harmful to minors, from which the work was only deleted in February 2008. Um, Guanado says, thank you for this. I was going crazy trying to figure out I'm sure you heard that. That's a kookaburra. An Australian kookaburra. That's a bird, and their bird song sounds like laughter. Weird laughter. Um, anyway, um, Guanardo says, I was going crazy trying to figure out what on earth Tony was reading. That was so bad. I guess it would be the equivalent of teen girl today reading Fifty Shades of Grey or something. I think... She has the potential to turn out okay, but it's li- unlikely with her entitlement or bad ad- and bad attitude. Yeah, they're all going off the rails, these kids. I love it. I love to see it. Um, yeah, what was she reading? Yeah, probably some. Oh, maybe not the equivalent of Fifty Shades. I think something like that. But I think back then they put so much importance on reading things like nowadays. You know, if a teen girl read Fifty Shades of Grey, you'd be like. Yeah, that's probably not appropriate. Uh, And also, it's weird that you're reading that. Read something more age-appropriate, please. But you wouldn't be like, oh, no, you're going to hell. Your rest of your future's ruined. Like, back then, they put way more importance on stuff like that. And de Bruel says, While Thomas follows the role model of Gene and turns into a serious businessman like his father, Tony and Christian don't develop according to their father's wishes. While the former feels an inclination to follow the paths of the suitors, like her uncle Justus, Tony, oh, sorry, like his uncle Justus, Tony gets more vain and arrogant as she gets older. When the consul discovers her improper associations with Gymnasitan, he decides to send her to boarding school. In the last chapter, Thomas was 16 years old. Now we learn that Tony is 15 and Christian is 14, so Tony is in the middle. Not the youngest child as I thought up until now. Just the youngest, just the daughter. So, you know, the princess of the family. Gonardo also says, I wanted to say how much I'm enjoying this book. It's fast-paced compared to some of the other books on the list. Births and deaths in rapid succession. And there's no time for endless philosophy about the whole thing. I am enjoying it more and more as we go along. And I do find the pace to be 
pretty blistering as well. There's kookaburras in the background. Chapter 7 goes like this. Therese Richbrot was humpbacked, so humpbacked that she was not much higher than a table. She was 41 years old, but as she had never put her faith in outward seeming, she dressed like an old lady of 60 or 70. Upon her padded grey locks rested a cap, the green ribbons of which fell down over shoulders narrow as a child's. Nothing like an ornament ever graced her shabby black frock. Only the large oval brooch, which with her mother's miniature in it, Little Miss Reachbrot had shrewd, sharp brown eyes, a slightly hooked nose, and thin lips which she could compress with extraordinary firmness. In her whole insignificant figure, in her every movement, there indwelt a force which was, to be sure, somewhat comic, yet exacted respect. And her mode of speech helped to heighten the effect. She spoke with brisk, jerky motions of the lower jaw and quick, emphatic nods. She used no dialogue, sorry, no dialect, but enunciated clearly and with precision, stressing the consonants. Vowel sounds, however, she exaggerated so much that she said, for instance, botter instead of butter, and even batter. <coughs> Excuse me, having a drink. Her little dog that was forever yelping, she called Babby instead of Bobby. She would say to the pupil... Don't be so stupid, child, and give two quick knocks on the table with her knuckle. It was very impressive, no doubt, whatever about that. And when Mademoiselle Pippinette, the Frenchwoman, took too much sugar to her coffee, Miss Wainsbrot had a way of gazing at the ceiling and drumming on the cloth with one hand while she said, Why not take the whole sugar basin? I would. It always made Mademoiselle Pippinette redden furiously. As a child, heavens, what a tiny child she must have been. Therese Witchbrut, <coughs> excuse me, Therese Witchbrut had given herself the nickname of Sesame, and she still kept it, even letting the best and most favoured of the day, as well as the boarding pupils, use it. Call me Sesame, child, she said on the first day to Tony Buddenbrook, kissing her briefly with a nod, with a sound, as of a small explosion on the forehead. I like it. Her older sister, however, Madame Kathleen, was called Nellie. Madame Kathleen was about 48 years old. She had been left penniless when her husband died and now lived in a little upstairs bedroom in her sister's house. She dressed like sesame, but by contrast was very tall. She wore woolen wristlets on her thin wrists. She was not a mistress and knew nothing of discipline. A sort of inoffensive and placid cheerfulness was all her being. When one of the pupils played a prank, she would laugh so heartily that she nearly cried, and then Sesame would rap on the table and call out, Nelly, very sharply, it sounded like Nelly. And Madame Catherson would shrink into herself and be mute. Madame Catherson, Catherson obeyed her younger sister, who scolded her as if she were a child. Sesame, in fact, despised her warmly. Therese Richbrot was a well-read, almost a, Ill, almost a literary woman. She struggled endlessly to keep her childhood faith, her religious assurance that somewhere in the beyond she was to be recompensed for the hard, dull present. But Madame Catherson, innocent, uninstructed, was all simplicity of nature. 
Dear, good Nelly, what a child she is. She never doubts or struggles. She is always happy. In such remarks there was always as much contempt as envy. Contempt was a weakness of Sesame's, perhaps a pardonable one. The small red brick suburban house was surrounded by a neatly kept garden. Its lofty ground floor was entirely taken up by schoolrooms and dining room, and bedrooms were in the upper story and the attic. Miss Reachbrot did not have a large number of pupils. As boarders, she received only older girls, while the day school consisted of but three classes. The lowest ones, Sesame took care to have only the daughters of irreproachably refined families in her house. Tony Buddenbrook, as we have seen, she welcomed most tenderly. She even made Bishop for supper, a sort of sweet red punch to be taken cold, in the making of which she was a, a past mistress. A little more Bishop, she urged, with a hearty nod. It sounded so tempting nobody could resist. Fraulein Witchbrot sat on two sofa cushions at the top of the table and presided over the meal with a with tact and discretion. She held her stunted figure stiffly erect, tapped vigilantly on the end, cried Nally and Babby, and subdued Mademoiselle Pippinet with a glance whenever the latter seemed about to take unto herself all the cold veal jelly. Tony had been allotted a place between two other boarders, Armgard von Schilling, the strapping blonde daughter of a Mecklenburg landowner, and Gerda Arnoldson, whose home was in Amsterdam. An unusual elegant figure with dark red hair, brown eyes, close together and a lovely pale haughty face. Opposite her sat a chattering French girl who looked like a negress with huge gold earrings, the lean English Miss Brown, with her sourish smile, sat at the bottom of the table. She was a boarder, too. It was not hard, with the help of Sesame's bishop, to get acquainted. Mademoiselle Pibonette had had nightmares again last night. Ah, quel horreur! She usually screamed, Help, thieves, help, thieves! until everybody jumped out of bed. Next it appeared that Gerda Arnoldson did not take piano like the rest of them, but the violin, and that Papa, her mother, was dead, had promised her a real Stradivarius. Tony was not musical, hardly any of the Buddenbrooks, and none of the Krogers were. She could not even recognise the chorals they played at St Mary's over the organ in the new church at Amsterdam had a vox humana, a human voice that was just wonderful. Armgard von Schilling talked about the cows at home, it was Armgard who, from the earliest moment, had made a great impression on Tony. She was the first person from a noble family whom Tony had ever known. What luck to be called Von Schilling. Her own parents had the most beautiful old house in the town, and her grandparents belonged to the best families. Still, they were called Plain Buddenbrook and Kroger, which was a pity, to be sure. The granddaughter of the proud Lebrecht Kroger glowed with reverence for Armgard's noble birth. Privately, she sometimes thought that the splendid Von went with her better than it did with Armgard, for Armgard did not appreciate her good luck, do you know. She had a thick pigtail, good-natured blue eyes and a broad Mecklenburg accent, and went about thinking just nothing at all on the subject. She was absolutely, sorry, she made absolutely no pretensions to being aristocratic. In fact, she did not know what it was. But the word aristocratic struck 
in Tony's small head, and she emphatically applied it to Gerda Arnoldson. Gerda was rather exclusive and had something foreign and queer about her. She liked to do up her splendid red hair in striking ways, despite Sesame's protests. Some of the girls thought it was silly of her to play the violin instead of the piano, but be it known, silly was a term of very severe condemnation. Still, the girls mostly agreed with Tony that Gerda was aristocratic in her figure, well-developed for her years, in her ways, her small possessions, everything. There was the ivory toilet set from Paris, for instance, that Tony could appreciate, for her own parents and grandparents also had treasures which had been brought from Paris. The three girls soon made friends. They were in the same class and slept together in the same large room at the top of the house. What delightful cosy times they had going to bed. They gossiped while they undressed, in undertones. However, for it was ten o'clock, and next door Mademoiselle Pimenet had gone to bed to dream of burglars. Eva Ewers slept with her. Eva was a little hamburger, whose father, an amateur painter and collector, had settled in Munich. The striped brown blinds were down, the low red-shaded lamp burned on the table, there was a a faint smell of violets and fresh wash, and a delicious atmosphere of laziness and dreams. Heavens, said Algard, half undressed, sitting on her bed, how Dr. Newman can talk. He comes into the class and stands by the table and tells about Racine. He has a lovely high forehead, remarked Gerda, standing before the mirror between the windows and combing her hair by the light of the candles. Oh yes, hasn't he? Armgard said eagerly. And you are ta- and you are taking the course just on his account, Armgard? You gaze at him all the time with your blue eyes as if... Are you in love with him? asked Tony. I can't undo my shoelace. Please, Gerda, thanks. Why don't you marry him? He is a good match. He will get to be high school professor. I think you're both horrid. I'm not in love with him and I would not marry a teacher anyhow. I shall marry a country gentleman. A nobleman? Tony dropped her stocking and looked thoughtfully into Armgar's face. I don't know yet, but he must have a large estate. Oh, girls, I just love that sort of thing. I shall get up at five o'clock every morning and attend to everything. She pulled up the bed covers and stared dreamily at the ceiling. Five hundred cows are before your mind's eye, said Gerda, looking at her in the mirror. Tony was not ready yet, but she let her head fall onto the pillow and tucked her hands behind her neck and gazed dreamily at the ceiling in her turn. Of course, she said, I shall marry a businessman. He must have a lot of money, so we can furnish elegantly. I owe that to my family and to the firm, she added earnestly. Yes, you'll see. That's what I shall do. Gerda had finished her hair for the night and was brushing her big white teeth using the ivory-backed hand mirror to see them better. I shall probably not marry at all, she said, speaking with some difficulty on account of the tooth powder. I don't see why I should. I'm not anxious. I'll go back to Amsterdam and play duets with Daddy, and afterwards live with my married sister. What a pity, Tony said briskly. What a pity. You ought to marry here and stay here for always. Listen, you could marry one of my brothers. The one with the big nose? asked Gerda, and gave a dainty little yawn, holding the hand mirror before her face. Or the other, doesn't matter. You could furnish beautifully. Jacobs could do it. The upholsterer in Fish Street is lovely taste. I'd come to see you every day. But then there came the voice of Mademoiselle Pibonet. It said, Oh, Mademoiselles, please go to bed. It's too late to get married any more this evening. Sundays and holidays, Tony spent in Meng Street, or outside the town, with her grandparents. How lovely 
when it was fine, on Easter Sunday, hunting for eggs and marzipan hares in the enormous Kroger garden. Then there were the summer holidays at the seashore. They lived in the Kerr house, ate at the table de hot, bathed and went donkey riding. Some seasons, when the console had business, there were long journeys, but Christmases were best of all. There were three present givings, at home, at the grandparents, and at Sesame's, where Bishop flowed in streams. The one at home was the grandest, for the console believed in keeping the holy feast with pomp and ceremony. They gathered in the landscape room with due solemnity. The servants and the crowd of poor people thronged into the pillared hall, where the console went about shaking their purple hands. Then outside rose the voice of the choir boys from St. Mary's in a quartet, and once, one's heart beat loudly with the awe and expectation. The smell of the Christmas tree was already coming through the crack in the great white folding doors, and the Frau Consul took the old family Bible with the funny big letters and slowly read aloud the Christmas chapter, and after the choir boys had sung another carol, everybody joined in O Tannenbaum, and went in solemn procession through the hall into the great salon, hung with tapestries that had statuary woven into them. There the tree rose to the ceiling, decorated with white lilies, twinkling and sparkling and pouring out light and fragrance, and the table with the present on it stretched from the windows to the door. Outside the Italians with the barrel organ were making music in the frozen snowy streets, and a great hubbub came over from the Christmas market in Market Square. All the children except little Clara stopped up to late supper in the salon, and there were mountains of carp and stuffed turkey. In these years, Tony Buddenbrook visited two Mecklenburg estates. She stopped for two weeks one summer with her friend Almgard on her von Schilling's property, which lay on the coast across the bay from Trevermond. At another time, she went with cousin Tilda to a place where Bernard Buddenbrook was inspector. This estate was called Thankless because it did not bring in a penny's income. But for a summer holiday it was not to be despised. Thus the years went on. It was, take it all in all, a happy... Sorry, it was, take it all in all, a happy youth for Tony. Alright, there we go. Another chapter done. That's the end of part two, by the way. I didn't realise that till just now, but there you go. Tony has had a happy youth all in all. And now we move on to see what happens next. Alright, thanks for listening. Don't work too hard, wherever you are. Um, And uh, yeah, see you tomorrow.